welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Knowing when to be culture versus counterculture can be hard to discern at times, whether it's food or fashion or any other topic. What's not in doubt is our need to submit to Christ, just as he submitted to God the Father as payment for our sins. Lead teacher Randy Pope continues the series, The Authentic Life, with the second part of this message entitled, Authentic Manhood and Womanhood covers 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verses 4 to 16. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. We are this week in the same series, The Authentic Life. We're dealing with the subject matter of authentic manhood and womanhood. We're in part two. Now, I usually don't keep urging people, if you missed last week, listen to the podcast. I don't, I don't do that very often. This is one week I would say it might be good to go back. I will say this, I'll just make this request, that if you were not here last week, you have not heard last week's, then I'm going to ask you not to write me after this week. I really, I don't say that humorously. I really am going to ask you, please don't write until you have listened to that. In light of this being such a very challenging subject matter, I realize that very often the trouble comes maybe more from, maybe not more, but plenty enough from what's not said. And things were said last week as a foundation to move to this week. So I'm going to spend more time just doing a little recap and understanding a little bit of that because we cannot move on without some understanding. Many of you are new with us, and I want to honor that fact. Now, I mentioned last week that there is an increasing societal embrace of androgyny, and define androgyny as the blending of the traits of the masculine and the feminine. It's now being honored, revered, loved, cherished. People are just thinking this is the greatest thing we could ever do. Now it's moving even from that to instead of blended traits of masculine and feminine, it's now blending of bodies. And so we have a transgender movement that is happening today. We know about it, all of us. Last week, we tried to address what is at risk, and there is much at risk, much. It was in doing so and trying to to talk about what the risk really is. But I closed with a story of a a same-sex attraction, Uh, a man who came to me and said, I've experienced it since my youth and so forth, and in doing so, I I used that story uh, as a warning uh, because of the things he said, and I learned about parenting and how it was related and so forth. I hope to avoid any false guilt to any of the parents of children with same-sex attraction issues by assuring that there are many causes, but uh, may have nothing to do with parental failings. That is one reason. Uh, Androgynous parenting in a strong way will absolutely be a cause. There's no doubt about that, I don't think. But I was trying to to warn, certainly. And uh, by the way, I want you to know it's true also of uh, immoral rebellion. It would be true of, of depression, if you have children with depression. I'll say this, Carol and I have experienced with our children, uh, we've experienced a a child that immorally rebelled for a season of life. Uh, We had a child that was in very, very deep depression. 
I, I know what it is as a parent, Carol knows what it is, to, to realize that you, you've got challenges with your children, and at the same time you have your challenges, you, you begin to feel, okay, I, I must be somewhat culpable to this thing, and I'm sure if we had only, why didn't, maybe it was this, and could it be that, and so forth, and it's a very easy thing to assume. We, we would doubt our own parenting appropriateness, maybe. But at the same time, I think we have to know this. We have to know that there are a lot of causes for kids that do what they do. And to be able to just say, oh, it's all, it goes back to the parent. We had a, we had a counselor for one of our children. It only lasted one session. We were in there with the child. And uh, the counselor said immediately, said, well, all problems of all kids come from lack of love from their parents. If the parents love them fully, they wouldn't have issues. That man and I didn't get along at all, <laughs> to say the least. A terrible theology behind what he said and so forth and so on. Folks, we need to know there are many causes other than parental mistakes. And we need to certainly look and see, are there things that we've done and this, that, and the other? I, I understand certainly that. But I want to just read a statement that I wrote very carefully because I want to say it well. Though there is a place for biblical warning and instruction regarding the dangers of androgynous parenting, I regret using the closing hurried minutes of a sermon to illustrate those dangers, leaving some to only be able to hear accusation and to feel condemnation. For this insensitivity, I sincerely apologize. I've chosen to delete the story from the last podcast. It would never be that intention. I know when we discuss this in other forums, where I use this and has been used well in helping parents avoid the danger. There's interaction, there's talk, there's explanation, there's, and to do so at the end, I, I was hesitant to do it. I said so before I shared the story, and I, I do regret that, and I apologize for any that might have felt that there was a, an accusation coming to all. It's not the case. Uh, not the case. So with that, let's pray. We're about to walk, step, and once again into the high weeds of a very difficult subject. So let's pray together. Father, as we talk about manhood and womanhood in a, a day as today, we know that even your word, your holy word, seems to be so foreign. It, 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 it is so true, our Father, how thankful I am to know that you have told us, you've made it so clear that your ways are higher than our ways and your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And so in humility as your people here, many guests to just observing and wondering, for those of us that are your children, we just, we want to bow and say we want to honor you through listening to your word and seeing what it has to say. Would you grant us wisdom and discernment in doing so and that we would follow nothing but what we found true in your word. So grant that we pray. And we ask in the great name of Christ our Savior, amen. Last week I mentioned that worldviews significantly shape the thinking of a people. No doubt about it. There are two primary uh, sources of the messaging that goes on. The world and then the word of God itself. 
Christians get exposed to the Word of God, and they, and they hear. I know this. I was in the, the parking lot this morning uh, up at the top and just praying and thinking through where we're going today and all and the message, and, and it, it just hit me. I thought, Lord, how, how many times will the people, your people, how many will they hear the messaging of this subject matter, manhood and womanhood, how many times will they hear this over the next two, three, four years? Oh, I know this church will loop back around and we'll be covering this you know, from time to time, but maybe this week or that week and out of town, miss it. Maybe it's five years, seven years. How about our kids? Are they ever gonna even hear the message that comes from God's word? And that's why it is so important, folks, what we're going to be teaching. I'm glad I'm having to review a few things here because there's certain things, I'll point them out, I think you better be able to articulate because it's got to come from you, the parent, to the child. It's got to start young. It's got to be messaging over and over that God's ways, this is what God has to say. If you save it just for the Sunday that they happen to talk about it in a church, if they do, I don't think the messaging is going to be sufficient. I really don't. The historic teaching on manhood and womanhood is that man and woman created equal in every respect. At the same time, a differing role to the two. We call that complementarianism. The more modern position you're going to hear today is called egalitarianism. It's what I would call a modern egalitarianism because technically egalitarianism, if you read the definition, we'd say we would agree. But I think today the modern view is, oh, created equal, all equal, male and female, the roles should not differ. They're one and the same. They're choosable. You can do whatever. Much, much different than complementarianism. The background of our text, I'm gonna invite you to turn to, is 1 Corinthians 11. As you turn, I'll give you a little background. The Eastern world at that time found it, in many places, the custom to wear veils. You see that a lot today, hats, head coverings, and so forth. That was to represent, at this time, the ideal of a woman wearing the head covering to say, I embrace modesty and I embrace submission. Hold that and don't get upset yet, okay? <laughs> there were temple prostitutes. They were ripping off those veils. They were going so far as to shave their head and what they were saying is, no, I don't live a life of modesty and, and no, I will not submit. I shouldn't submit, I won't submit. And so there was a defiance of the culture and the beliefs that were basically held in that culture. Then the church is born in Corinth, where this letter is written, 1 Corinthians. It's written to this people now that are experiencing something very new. Now for the first time, there's a freedom. Women are seeing a freedom they've never had before. Now the gospel says, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is the way it works, and so they're seeing all this freedom, and they start asking the question, well, where does it say that a woman has to have her head covered, and where does, who has said, and, and so forth and so on? And so it just became kind of a, a question that the church began to ask. 
does this still apply? Do we need to have these things? Is this something that's useless or what about it? And so the Apostle Paul is writing to a people, some of which were going to an extreme and causing problems as a result. And so he is going to address that in our text. The question, though it will appear the big question is, does a woman have to have her head covered, particularly when she worships? Does, uh, does, a, does a man have to have short hair? What happens if a man has long hair? Those really are not the, the real issues that he's dealing with. He will touch on the culture. But what he's doing is he's really addressing the bigger question, and that is this. Christ has paid the ransom for all. We stand before him, male, female, slave, Scythian. There is no distinction. Should we have any symbols like this? Or are there still distinctions to be made? Have the distinctions gone away? That's the real theological question that they're having to deal with. So I want to hurriedly go through verses 2 and 3 we looked at last week. Verses 2 and 3 deal with the subject matter, God's truth regarding authentic manhood and womanhood. And in this particular first two verses, uh, what he's giving us here is, is the principle, the, what we're going to call the biblical principle. It goes like this, verse 2, now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Hold firm to the traditions. So the traditions referred to, refers to things that are, are not set in God's word. They just have to do with, with the things that have been declared. And, and there were no traditions really set, not firm traditions on these things. And Paul's going to have to address it. But what he's saying is, when you talk about traditions, it's not historical traditions it's traditions from the authority of the church in any form or fashion. And so he wants to clarify that whole issue. Now, as he does, he's going to address two issues that now will be declared firmly to be in the Word of God because this is God's authentic, inspired Word of God. And therefore, he's going to say, we're going to talk about male leadership. We've got to talk about that whole issue of, of the, the whole issue of male and female in the church, gender issue, and we're going to talk about the Lord's table and set some firmness in that. So that's where we are in verse 2. Then we come to verse 3, and this is just very hurriedly. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. We mentioned last week you have three statements. Christ is the head of man, number one. I'm going to skip to number three. Number three says that God is the head of Christ. No debate of that, is there? Not in the Christian church. We all say no problem there. But the one that's sandwiched in between today is just declared as cannot be. That is that the man is the head of a woman. So that's the big discussion here. That is what's in question. You need to understand the word for head here is fountainhead. It's the it's idea of source. You got to keep in mind this is coupled with the same author in other places addressing the idea of submission, which we're going to get to. But at the same time, here's this thing, and in verse 8, we're going to find that he starts going into the creation issue, the creation order. Now, this teaching has been so abused by the church today. 
I hit this hard last week, from outside the church, inside the church. Women said enough is enough because what man was doing and is still doing to this day is saying, hey, you read the Bible? You don't understand that I am the man and you're the woman. And this is the way it works. I get my way. You're, the, you're just the woman. And it was just screaming and is screaming of inferiority as if you're just a woman. And women said, enough's enough. And the rebellion that it brought, and it was good to rebel, I do believe. But unfortunately, instead of fighting for equality, it got twisted to be fighting for sameness. And that's where I think we've gotten into trouble. I went into that into great detail. There's a wrong presupposition, and the presupposition is submission equates to inferiority. Headship, nope, that's superiority. And therefore, the problem. Here is what I'm going to say. Parents learn this explanation. People are at least coming up in the church who believe in God. They understand some basics about God. Can maybe get a glimpse into the truth and beauty of what God's word does teach in this area by looking at the Trinity. Last week I tried to explain, you've got God, one God, three persons. Three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, equal in power, substance, and glory. Then we talked about how when Christ came to earth. He came incarnate in flesh. The Christians should not and do not really debate. Was he still equal in power, substance, and glory? Of course he's equal. He said himself while on earth, I and the Father are one. There's equality, no doubt about it. But at the same time, this same Jesus, he said, I'm here to do the will of my Father, and he says, I'm in submission to the Father. Well, he's in submission to the Father? I thought he was equal to the Father, and it's yes. He is equal to the Father while in submission to the Father because we've got a wrong understanding that if we're in submission, therefore, we can't be equal. No, it's not true. It's a different role. Jesus had a different role while equal with the Father. Now, we're going to talk more about that whole idea as we move on through our text for today. But I concluded last week suggesting that the teaching has become distorted and it always will when you eliminate or divorce it from its two companion words, you'll find in Scripture, Paul uses it, love, love, love. Number two, exaltation. Now you understand that if there's going to be submission, there's also to be love and exaltation. We see it in the Trinity, the love of the Father to the Son. Let me tell you, that's perfect love. Absolutely perfect love. And so Jesus goes, oh, I would, I would gladly be in submission to the Father. I will give my life as much as I would say, Father, please, if it be, you know, I would love this cup to pass. But he says, nevertheless, thy will be done. Why would he be such, in such submission? I'll tell you why. Because he's being hammered by the Father. Because the Father loved him so much and knew it was the right and best thing. Love always accompanies, but it's not just love, it's also exaltation. Whenever you see the biblical teaching of the Trinity, always remember this. Explain to your children that the Son, because of his being so willing to submit to the Father, that he is exalted. 
He is the one we call the exalted one of the Godhead. Though equal still with the Father, he's the exalted one. And not only is he exalted, but he receives a name that is above all other names. Though he's equal to the other persons of the Trinity, it's his name that's exalted. You look at marriage, and this is the way God designed it to be. Marriage is simply a picture. It really is. And the picture is simply this, that the husband loves. He loves and he loves and he loves. And as a result of that, she finds it so easy to submit with a true understanding of submission. And it's not that you're male, therefore I submit. No. It's a love companionship. And when doing so, the result is exaltation. So, okay, that came in with the gospel to an American culture now. The Bible Belt, we talked about it last week. The Bible Belt, the last of that, is probably the South. Where do you open the door for the woman? Where do you carry the bags? The lifeboat. When only a few can live, who gets to survive? Is it the superior male? No. It's the exalted female. It goes with the whole understanding of this. Now, having said that, we now get into the most complicated of texts. This is going to be verses 4 through 16. And it, it, it is confusing. It is very, very confusing. And I'm going to make it as simple as I can, all right? But I, we can't just skirt it because it's challenging. This will be the cultural expression regarding authentic manhood and womanhood. How is it expressed in a particular culture? And we get to look at it through the lens of a culture in Corinth to understand this. All right, so here's the question. How come you ladies don't have a head covering? Maybe if, except for fashion reason, you might have a head covering, but it's not religious. Oh, people can take you to the Bible right here to this passage and say, hey, ladies, you're, you're, you got a problem here. And there's some that believe that. Why are you not doing it? Well, I hope if someone challenging you as a Christian, not those that are coming and seeking kind of understanding the faith, but you as Christians that have been a Christian a while, I hope if somebody says to you, hey, why don't you wear hats? The Bible says you're supposed to, that you wouldn't find yourself going, uh, 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 I don't know. And you might read it and go, maybe we should be. I'm going to suggest you don't need to be wearing hats. And this explains why. Though when you read it, at surface you might think, oh, it's teaching that you do have to wear a head, a head covering. So, how do you determine if something's cultural? Learn this about interpreting the Bible. You find what the text says, and you study it deeply. You look at the context. You know, what is going on, and what's around this? What's the context that this is placed in? And then you look at cross-references. What do other texts beyond these? What do they have to say, and so forth? And then you can come to understand. Let's try to unpack this. We begin with verses 4 and 5. It says this, every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. For she is one and the same and the woman, uh, as the woman whose head is shaved. Now, Keep in mind, there is, there is no declaration from God's authority about this issue. Therefore, at this point, it's a, it certainly is. It's a cultural issue. But it's needing to be understood by the people who are experiencing it. 
I know in that text, and we're going to go to the next verses, we'll kind of unpack it, but I know in that text it says a woman was prophesying. And some people would say, oh, oh, don't you say women are not supposed to have authority there? No. Do you know prophesying? Do you know what that is? Prophesying is actually a person using human words to describe what they believe God has brought to mind. Man, we got people with a gift of prophecy. Carol and I were talking about one of our members here that I said, man, what a gift of prophecy that she has. We weren't talking about this text. We were just talking in discussion. What a gift of prophecy she has. I bet God's already prompted her mind on this thing. I bet she's probably whatever. Well, the reality is, is that it's, it's, there's no authority that it had to be checked out by others. It had to be agreed by, by the leadership of the church. It wasn't just now today, a lot of prophecy is God told me and therefore this is. Well, it may, may not be. It depends on if, if it truly was prompted by him. But you come to verse six and it begins to open up a little bit. Verse six, it says, for if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. And a key to understanding this text is there is an assumed if in this whole uh, writing. In other words, uh, what he's saying is if removing a head cover, which would be to reject submission, to reject modesty, if you're going to remove your head covering, you might as well just shave your head. That's, what, that's all it's saying. You might as well go ahead and just shave your head. Do, do what the prostitutes do. That's basically, if you're going to push this culture away, you're saying this, you might as well say that. And he's saying, if it is disgraceful, meaning in your culture, if it's disgraceful, then use a head covering. Now we come to verses 7 through 9. It says, for a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Now, what he's saying here is, is simply something like this. If coverings are used in your culture to express differences between male and female, then I'm going to give you some truth that could correspond with your cultural expression and you can use that in a beneficial way. And that's where he starts out this idea of glory. The glory means delight. And he says, do you understand that, that God delights in man and man delights in woman? So he, as he's saying that, he, he's saying God delights in mankind. Now you understand in a Semitic culture like this one, Understand that a woman would be covered by either her father if single or her husband if married. Women didn't have to be circumcised. They couldn't be, obviously, but there was no corresponding thing for them because they're under the husband. That was the way it was understood. And, and so they understand that. And it says God delights in mankind. So why cover that? God sees and he loves. Look, this is great. Why would you cover? Why would you cover him? But then he says at the same time, man delights in woman. That, that would be his wife. If he's delighting in his wife, only for a husband, obviously, but you want to cover the head. 
no, no problem there. There's, there's something very personal there. I mean, that's intimate between them. And so he's saying, you can find a good expression for what you're doing. May have come out of that reason. I don't know. But he's, he's just saying, that's perfectly good, what, what you can illustrate through it. Then he talks about the order of creation in verses 8 and 9. And then we come to verse 10. I do not understand this verse. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now, let me tell you, I've read the different views. It's, it can be pastors. Angels is used sometimes for pastors. You know, maybe it's, well, your pastor is a human and therefore appropriate in church and so forth. Maybe it's literal angels, and there's a whole theory on why it might be. But I don't think anybody really knows for sure. Nothing seemed overwhelmingly convincing about what. So let's move to number 11. <laughs> However... In the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the, through the woman, and all things originate from God. Now, now we're coming in to begin to understand something about what is the meaning of this headship. Because keep in mind, this is the same author that that wrote Ephesians under inspiration and also Colossians. And there it's the, the very term is used of the role distinctions. Husbands love, wives submit, not inferior, keep that in mind. And so what he's saying is headship is inclusive of equality, yes, but also mutual dependency. That's really important. So how do you, how do you understand that? What should it be like in a marriage if there's mutual submission? Literally, I mean, we should submit one to the other, Paul says in Ephesians. What do you mean you submit to each other? Maybe something like this. I really believe we ought to do this. And the spouse says, oh, I believe we ought to do that. No, I really think we should do this. No, I think we should do that. Ooh, we have to make a decision. Honey, let's just do what you think. No, honey, let's do what you think. <laughs> oh, no, no, we need to do what you think. Sound like the discussion's going on in your homes, doesn't it? Absolutely. <laughs> no, but there is a little bit of that to where we say, you know, I would love to be able just to... Now, but here's the deal. Is it not true that you as married people that are married, that you have debates about what you should or shouldn't do and there's disagreement and nothing seems to, to help the problem? You got two? Well, if there were two heads, God didn't, God didn't ordain that there are two heads of the family. That's why you do have a head in the man. Not because the man's superior, but in God's order. It's the creation order. So he says, okay, the man has, has that ultimate, there has to be a tie break somewhere so what does that mean? Well, a man gets whatever he wants, ultimately. He always gets his way. That's not mutual submission. Now, Carol, if she were here, she were in the early service, but if she were here in this service and I were to say, Carol, do, do you think I am the head of the home? She'd say, absolutely. She wouldn't say that because I'm supposed to say it. She'd say, yeah, and I'm very happy for that to be the case. Well, she is happy. You know why? Because I've understood this about the idea of submitting one to the other. I know the reality is, is that, that I am a player coach. 
And she is a player too. And so I have to, as a player coach, I have, a, I have a, an added responsibility. And it's not to always think what I say is best. What I have to do is I have to say, look at your batting average. Look at my batting average. Well, I'm, I'm the head. But I'll say this, and I, I think truthfully this, if you say the last 10 things we've disagreed on that we have to decide, I have made the decision on every one of them. Nine out of 10 times to do whatever she says. <laughs> See, I say that in a way to make you think, yeah, it's not I'm the head, she's the neck that turns it. That's not what I'm saying at all. Here's for me, and it wouldn't be the same as you. We're not the model for this. But for us, I've learned. It's taken me time. I've learned where she's got a better batting average than I do. Her batting average is not perfect, neither is mine. But I'll look at the decision making, I'll say, who's got the better batting average? And I'm constantly having to say, it's a humbling thing. I have to say, well, you got the better batting average. Let's put your answer up. So if I take my batting average and I think, this is an area I've got a little bit better batting average than you, doesn't mean I'm always going to get the hit. But I use what I think and we fail. Guess who takes the blame? I have to take the blame. If I put her up to bat, and I say, Carol, you got a better batting average, so I'm going to go with your thinking on this one. And her thought strikes out. Guess who takes the blame? I do. And she says, it's a beautiful world. <laughs> I mean, literally, she says, I like this, you know. If I got a better batting average, you put me up to bat. You know, and, 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 and there is this idea of, well, I would love to do what you, and sometimes I say, I can't, I just don't believe that's the thing God wants, and, I, da, 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 and I'm here, I'm going to have to make a hard decision, I think my batting average is better here, and I'm going to, well, yeah, but the truth of it is, that's not a problem to her, not if I'm loving her and exalting her. She says, this is the greatest, this is the greatest arrangement a woman could ever know, and the women today in the world are saying, this would be horrible. Sure, if you've got a man who says, lady, woman, you do... No, not how it works at all. It takes us to, to the uh, 13th verse. 13th verse through 15 says, Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? So he's saying, you judge for yourself. That's telling you, it's not like, does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it's a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Now, you can read that very quickly and say, oh, he's saying long hair on a man is wrong. I'm going to suggest that's really not. There's no declaration that long hair is, is a wicked or bad thing. Think of Samson. And so I, I hope no one hears me say, if you got long hair as a male, oh, you're doing something wrong. Is it wrong? Well, if the culture says it's wrong, then as the Christian, don't don't go and just say, I'm going to do what the prostitutes did back in the day. I'm just going to do something totally against what everybody thinks this means. I'm going to say something that makes a point. Well, if that point is what you're doing, if it's just style or whatever, and the culture accepts that, well, fine. I don't have any problem with that. I don't think God does. But if you're saying, hey, I'm doing it because I want to blur distinctions between the male and female going against what God has to say about those distinctives, then I think, okay, we got a problem. He appeals to nature and he does say, hey, look what nature has done for us. The reality is, whether if you're not in this culture or not, the, the point is, is that, that, do you know that it, it, it is genetically easier for a man to go bald than a woman? It is. 
So there is something to say, okay, there's a, why is it most cultures men do have the shorter hair? And well, there's just something natural about that. I mean, it's wrong if you go against, but he says it's the natural thing. And, and, and you think about it, what happens when a man and a woman have chemotherapy and are losing their hair? A woman's going to put on a scarf or she's going to get a wig or something, more than likely. Some choose not to, which is fine. But what does a man do? He just shaves the rest off. And he goes out feeling pretty manly. You know, like, look at me. I'm, it's not an issue of hair for a man. Not at all. And so I think he's just simply letting us understand that, that uh, for women outside the cultural practice, her hair is her covering. And that's all he's saying. Leads us to the very last verse. Reads this way. But if one is inclined to be contentious, that means they're going to spar over this. We have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. So he's saying there's no declaration of God on this thing. Neither those of us as apostles, he's saying, nor any other infallible guide has sanctioned the cultural custom that's in question. So let's not fight over it. Don't make such a big deal out of it. Now, that's as best I can say, here's what the text is saying. I've already admitted to you, this is difficult. I would never, you know this, I don't ever stand up here and say, well, you hear from me. When godly Bible-believing people disagree, just know that I'm right. That's not true. I always say, don't you ever, don't you ever, just because I say something, don't believe that. Take it because you see that's what you find in the Bible. If you hear something and see something that's better describing what you think the Word of God is teaching, you adhere to that. Be more noble than the Bereans, as we read in Acts. Study. Show yourself approved. But it is my job to help you kind of in that search as a pastor teacher, and that's what I'm doing, and now you'll take that and have to figure out, okay, do I see this is really what the, the Word of God is saying? I said last week that I would close with a, a contrast of characteristics of authentic and inauthentic man and woman, what it really looks like for man and womanhood. I'm on, because of, of limited time, I, I, I have another 10 to 15 minutes of stuff that I was going to do. I, I'm cutting that out. But I'll just summarize in saying this. Please know this. Authentic manhood is not machoism. If you think of that word macho and what it means, I don't know. But probably that's not describing what real manhood is. There's a story of a uh, professional hockey goalie, uh, Glenn Hall, that many have probably read about, heard about, where uh, he, uh, he went 522 games consecutively as a goalie without wearing a mask. And one of the games, he got hit by a puck in the face and uh, knocked him unconscious. They took him off on a stretcher Gave him 23 stitches. One period later, he came out, and he was a goalie again without a mask. Some people say, there's a real man. I say, there's a stupid man. <laughs> I don't, uh, no offense to him, but I'm just saying, uh, you don't do that. that. Was he trying to make a statement? If so, that's not what the statement of manhood is. It's not. I think we need to understand it's not that. It's... Uh, it's neither is it emasculation. If you find somebody who's kind of finding themselves where 
they can't and won't make any move to say what's right, what they have to do, what's appropriate, what's good, and so forth. And they're just kind of sitting back. And I'm not talking about a timid person. I'm talking about somebody who will not accept their role, will not do the job they should be doing, will not stand up for what's right, and just gets pushed around. That's not a man. He may get beat up because he's not big enough or strong enough. But, but, and that's what gets so hard to get into. But please understand, it's an internal thing, not so the external. I use this as, as an illustration. I, I've had too many occasions over the years where, where uh, uh, maybe a, a, a woman has had an affair and she's deserting her husband and this, that, and the other. And, and I'm talking to him and he's hurting over it and saying, what do I do? And I say, well, tell me what you're going to do. Well, I, first of all, I've got to find a place to live. I said, well, do you... Is that because you have children? Do you have children? That, that, no, no, it's just the two of us. And I have to find, I said, why, why, are, why are you the one that have to find a place to live? Well, because she kicked me out of the house. And I wish I could tell you how many times I've said these words to somebody. Just to make a point to say, I, I don't think I know her that well. How, how, how big and strong is your wife? <laughs> or maybe I know her and I say, does she carry a gun? What? How did she do that? Well, she told me I had to. And I said, you know, if that becomes the pattern, no wonder. There can be problems sometimes. I'm not saying everybody got a divorce. That it, please don't hear that. But I'm saying it, just men. We have to stand up and be men. But it's not physical. It's not strength. It's not, it's not frame. It's not height or depth of voice. It's none of those things. In fact, after I mention the women, I'll tell you the definition I think that it is. It's just my personal definition. But authentic womanhood, please know this. It's not external that determines what's a real woman. It's not is she pretty. It's not is she sexy. I don't think you would never find any attention there going in Scripture. It's always the inner character of the person, always the inner beauty. So whether it be man or woman, Authentic manhood and womanhood, I would suggest, requires, not some total, but this would be the requirement, being secure in one's God-given sexual identity and one's uh, corresponding God-given complementary roles. Now, if you want to hear, you know, rather than call and say, what was that definition? I want to use that. You know this, if you go on our podcast... There are notes that go with it. And anything that I'm putting as quotes or whatever, you can find there. If it's not, you can call my assistant and, and get. But, but I just wanted to quickly, our time is up. I just wanted to be able to quickly say, please understand what a man and woman is. And we have to be that which we are. Now, I have to close with what I closed with last week. I hope you hear this over and over and over. The gospel story is Jesus submitting himself to his equal. And as a result of submitting himself to his equal, he actually is exalted and given a name above all names. That's the gospel. So that any one of us who submit to him will be exalted to righteousness and be given the name Son of God, Daughter of God. That's what it is. You know, you take away submission. That's an ugly word. Everybody wants to get rid of it. 
Where is submission good? It's not good anywhere. Get away with submission. Oh, really? Take it out of the Godhead, and you have no salvation for anybody. No salvation. Take it out of the plan for man's salvation. And just say, hey, I'm going to follow in the sense of I want to be known by you and I want to, be, I want to go to heaven and I'll, I'll, I'll try to have faith in you and believe in you. But, but submission, I want to pull it out. Submission, I don't want that. That's a so-called believer. It's not the real deal. You can't be a follower of Christ without submitting to him. And if you don't want to submit to him, it has to be that you've not seen the love. It's not because he doesn't have the love. You haven't seen the love of God. And so you drill in on the cross and see the love of God. And I'll tell you what it'll do. That's what causes you to bend the knee and say, I want to submit. I'm not just trying to get my assurance for eternity. I, I want to submit to you because you love so well. That's the truth of the gospel. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would grant to us right now, grant to us the ability to do just that, to submit to you, seekers among us to submit well, even this moment, to see your love and say, I want to be yours and to follow you. I pray, Father, for, I pray, Father, for those that are here as seekers, they would see your love for believers, that we might see your love renewed over and over by who you are and what you do. And Father, that might cause us to bow the knee and enjoy the exalted righteous state in which you've placed us. Thank you for naming us as your children. We're blessed and we're thankful. We ask it all in the matchless name of Christ our Savior. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day. Thank you.